Well, good morning, church. Everybody doing all right? I'm very glad to be back with you this morning. And just to make sure that you're awake, I want to start our time together with just a few questions that are related to one another, okay? So by a show of hands, I want to know how many of you in this room have a pet in your home, okay? Okay, a good number of you, okay. How many of you have a pet that sometimes does very dumb things? Okay, a little bit less. How many of you still love your pet in the midst of the dumb things, right? When I was growing up as a child, I had uh, what to this day remains my favorite dog of all time. In fact, there is no dog that compares with my great dog. It was a very fat, short-haired dachshund named Snoopy. It's a great name. I know I named it. Thank you. I love Snoopy, but the problem with Snoopy is that Snoopy failed at almost anything a dog should be able to do. Let me just give you a few examples. I love to play catch, and so I would take a ball and I would throw it and I'd say, Snoopy, go get it. The problem with Snoopy is that Snoopy was a little bit blind, and so she would run, but she would run right past the ball into the wall, the nearest wall, door, whatever it was, she'd hit that wall and she injured herself many times, so I had to stop playing catch. Another thing, I would prepare her food. We had this nice tray that we had done. I would, we'd always get the best kind of food. But Snoopy, that wasn't good enough for Snoopy. Snoopy wanted to eat out of the trash can constantly. And so if there was a trash can anywhere, she would knock it over. If there was food there, she'd eat that. Sometimes she even ate the paper goods that were in the trash can, which we had to deal with. Some of you have dogs that are protectors. That's what a dog is supposed to do, right? You're supposed to bark. Snoopy was worthless when it came to intruders. If anybody came into our house, Snoopy would just sleep right through it. She was a very, very flawed dog. And yet, I loved her. Why? Because she was faithful. No matter how many times Snoopy screwed up, no matter how many times she failed to do all the things that dogs are supposed to do, every time I came in that room, where was she? Right next to me, trying to do the things that I was doing, trying to be with me. She was flawed and yet faithful. Now, I tell you all of that to say this. Over the next six weeks, we are going to be looking at one of Jesus' disciples that was a lot like Snoopy. His name's Simon Peter. And while we all hear about Simon Peter, he's one of the most well-known disciples, what you're going to find is that Peter literally fails as a disciple of Jesus all the time. In this series, we're going to see Peter uh, try to boss Jesus around, try to tell Jesus what he needs to be doing. We're going to see him fail to trust Jesus. We're going to see him deny Jesus. And even at the moment Jesus needed him the most, right before his death, he found Peter, what? Asleep. Peter failed all the time. And yet, Peter is one of those people who, though he falls by the grace of God, he continually gets back up and pursues Jesus. He's faithful. He stays by his side trying to do the things that Jesus was doing and would do. I'm, I don't know about you, I'm incredibly thankful that one of the greatest disciples is a failure like Peter because most of the time, my discipleship, it looks a lot like that. I try, I'm going after the Lord, I'm pursuing him, and yet I often find myself on my back. What we're going to find in this sermon series is that through the course of Peter's life, his interactions with Jesus change him. It takes him from this man here at the beginning who, who doesn't even trust Jesus about fishing to the man who becomes one of the greatest leaders of the early church, to the man who writes two books of the New Testament, to the man who, when they go to crucify him, 
He says, no, I'm not worthy of that. Crucify me upside down. All because of his faith in Jesus. Jesus never gives up on Peter. And I'm encouraged this morning that Jesus does not give up on you and he doesn't give up on me as we seek to follow him. In this study, we're going to look at some of the key events and conversations that he had with Peter. And I thought it would be fitting, fitting for us to start this study with Jesus's first interaction with Peter. Uh, one of the first conversations that we see, and it's when he calls Peter for the first time. And so if you would, open your Bible to that passage that, that David read a moment ago. It's in Luke chapter 5. If you need to grab one of the Bibles in the pew, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that home. Um, it is found, Luke is the third book in the New Testament. So you're going to find Matthew, Mark, Luke. And then if you get to John, you have gone too far. So go ahead in the Bible and make your way there. The book of Luke is one of four biographies in the Bible about the life of Jesus. And what you need to know about each of these biographies, what we call the Gospels, are that they are, number one, they're true, right? They are uh, eyewitness life accounts of people who interacted with Jesus. But number two, every account is purposeful. It would have been impossible for these writers to record every miracle of Jesus, every conversation that they had with Jesus. And so when they do highlight one, what that tells you is it's important. It teaches you something about Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at here. The very first thing that we see that this teaches us about Jesus is this. Point number one, if you're taking notes, Jesus is calling each one of us to deeper relationship with him. This morning, I know in this room there is a, the full spectrum of spiritual maturity, but I'm just telling you, no matter where you're at, whether you're a brand new Christian, whether you're not a Christian, whether you're a longtime Christian, Jesus is calling you. He is inviting you to take one step closer and deeper relationship with him. To set the stage for this text, you need to understand that this miracle that we're going to see happens at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And yet already at the beginning of his ministry, his popularity was exploding. In our culture, if I were to say names like Steph Curry or Beyonce or even Elon Musk, all of you in this room would say, okay, we, we kind of know who those people are. We have an idea of who they are. Well, in the area of Galilee, that was Jesus. You say the name Jesus, even at this point, and they knew who Jesus was. The combination of his ability to heal people, to perform miracles, his ability to communicate better than any communicator of their age. You think about it, the crowds loved Jesus. He was a must-see in the area of Galilee, and that includes for Peter. Peter already in chapter 4 had seen firsthand his power when he healed his mother-in-law. And so the scene here is you have all of these crowds that are so dense, they're pressing on Jesus that he has to go out into the water and begin to teach. I want you to imagine if this was taking place today. Our culture is all about crowds, are we not? We love crowds. We whether it's crowds on social media or crowds of influence, crowds in our power, we, we long for big crowds. If I was on Jesus' board of directors, I would have probably looked at Jesus in this moment and said, Jesus, this is the time to capitalize on your momentum. Let's get some video of you healing the lepers. Let's, let's get a YouTube channel. Let's, let's retweet that quote that you just said and make sure it has a really cool picture with it. Let's capitalize and build bigger crowds. What I want you to see in this text is that Jesus is not focused on the crowds. While he is teaching the crowds, he's giving them the truth of God. If he was focused on the crowds, we would have heard what he had to teach the crowds. 
But instead, the text focuses on his conversation with one person, Peter. And he says this, look at verse 4. It says, And when he had finished speaking to the crowds, he said to Simon, who again is, is also Peter, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. What we have here is an important principle that you're going to see throughout the Gospels. The principle is this. Jesus' main calling was not to draw crowds. His main calling was to make disciples. His main calling was not to to just impress people and to have people that liked him and influence people. No, his main calling was to, to call people out of the crowds into a relationship where they trusted and depended on him wholeheartedly. He knew that if he was going to change the world, it wasn't going to be through the crowds. It was going to be the people through the people that trusted him, even when it did not make sense. And so you think about this. Why would he not be after the crowds? Because crowds are fickle. I would imagine if you've walked very much in church life, you've seen this. I've seen it in the city. A new pastor comes, and they're a great communicator. And so all the crowds, they they go to that church. But then the church down the street has great worship. And so you see the crowds move from that church to this church. Then that church has community groups. So you go to that church. The crowds are always asking, what's in it for me today? There's no level of commitment. That's why people love being part of a crowd. That's not what Jesus was looking for. Jesus knew the hearts of the crowds surrounding him. Yes, they loved him in this moment because he was healing their friends. He was healing their family members. But I ask you, where were these crowds when Jesus was put on trial? These same crowds were shouting, crucify him. Crucify him. Jesus focused his ministry not on drawing crowds, but on calling people, ordinary individuals like you, like me, like Peter, to step into a deeper relationship with him. You look at what he asked Peter to do, and you can already see what Jesus is trying to teach him. We know from the text that, that Peter and all of his friends, they were done for the day when it comes to fishing. It says that they were on the side, they were culture, you would fish. All. That means that the shop is closed, right? They've been working all night in that culture, you would fish all night, and then you'd fix your nets in the morning, and then you'd take your break. Well, right when they're ready to take their break, what does Jesus do? He says, hey, let's, let's get back out on the water. If I'm Peter, I'm thinking, hey, uh, Jesus, I, I like you and all, you, but you're the son of a carpenter. I'm a fisherman. It's likely that Peter had been uh, part of a long line of fishermen, that from a young age, he had fished these waters. He knew what time the fish were biting. He knew where to fish. And yet he looks at Jesus here, and Jesus says, well, I want you to go out deeper, and I want you to put your nets out again. If I'm Peter and his friends, I'm saying, Jesus, you've got to be kidding me. We just finished. We see a bit of this skepticism in verse 5. Look at it. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. He says, we know what we're doing and we weren't able to catch anything. But then listen to what he says. But at your word, I will let down the nets. If you are underlining in your Bible, I just ask you to underline that phrase. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Sit with that for a moment. Peter had absolutely no reason to go deeper and let down his nets. There's not a bit of evidence. There's not a bit of his wisdom. There's not a bit of his past experience that would lead him to let down his nets again. 
But what does Peter say? Jesus, because you said so, I'll do it. Church family, I have a question for you this morning. When's the last time you did something just because Jesus said so? You looked at your life and you said, Jesus, I, I, it doesn't seem practical. Jesus, it doesn't seem like it's, it's according with my wisdom and my experience. Jesus, all of my friends say this isn't the wise thing to do. But because you said so, I'll do it. I will obey. I think a lot of us in this room are like the crowds. We're very happy to follow Jesus, to do what he's called us to do, as long as it's benefiting us, as long as it makes sense. But here's the thing. If the first thought that you have when you come to any of what Jesus has said in his word, you read through the Sermon on the Mount. If you come to any of that and you say, well, Jesus, that's just not practical. Here's what that reveals. Uh, it's revealed some many things in my own heart this week. It reveals that while you may say, Jesus, you are my Lord, says Lord, what do you say? Personal advisor. If Jesus is Lord, what do you say? Because you say so, I'm in. I'll obey. I'll do it. But if Jesus is just a personal advisor, what do you do? You say, well, Jesus, I'll take that into account, right? I'll weigh that with other opinions. I'll weigh that with all my other options. And if it makes sense, if it seems practical to me, then I will obey. There's a big difference in the crowd and the disciple. Peter in this text says, no, Jesus, because you say so, I will obey. Let's make this very practical this morning. When you read what Jesus has to say about your money, what do you do? When Jesus says, hey, I want you to be generous. When he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, not things of this world. What do you do? If Jesus is Lord, you say, okay, I'm going to be generous. I'm going to give over and above what I'm capable of giving because I want to bless other people. But if Jesus is your personal advisor, what do you do? Ah, Jesus, I need to make sure that I'm going to make ends meet here. Jesus, I need to make sure I'm still able to buy these things that I wanted to buy. As long as your plan of generosity fits within my plan, then I'll do it. What about when Jesus says, be kind to one another, forgive one another, love one another. There are some people that it's very practical to do that, right? It's very easy to do that. But what about those who are your enemies? What about that, that boss who's a jerk, <laughs> What about that family member that's extremely hard to love? What about that person with a different political ideology, different value system? If it's practical, Jesus, sure. If he's Lord, you say, okay, I'll obey. One more, Jesus speaks oftentimes about the importance of prioritizing spiritual disciplines, things like prayer, time with the Father, time in the Word, fasting, all these spiritual disciplines, worship. If Jesus is your personal advisor, what do we do? Jesus, if I have time for you today, if it's practical for me to spend time with you today, then I'll do it. If it's not practical, no, I'll save you for later. What I'm trying to do this morning is to help you to do the same thing that I've done this week, to assess your heart and ask this question. Am I just a member of the crowd or am I a growing disciple in Jesus? Has there ever been a point that, that I've said, Jesus, just because you say so, I don't know what God's telling you to do. I don't know what he's told you to do. Maybe there's a sin that you need to confess this morning. Maybe it's a step of baptism. Maybe it's something else, but 
decide something, and you at this point are saying, it's not practical. Disciples say, Jesus, because you say so, amen. Oftentimes what we find is that we miss the power of Jesus because we fail to do so, just because he said so. That leads us to step number two, though. The second thing we learn about Jesus, and that's this. Jesus can accomplish what we cannot accomplish on our own. Thankfully, Peter takes a bold step of faith here. He goes deeper and he lets down his nets, and we see a pretty incredible miracle happen. Verse 6, it says this. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and they filled both the boats so that they began to sink. It's incredible. This was not supposed to happen. Fish don't bite in the heat of the day in the Sea of Galilee. And yet, what, is, what happens? God takes Peter's small act of obedience, his small act of faith, and he turns it into a miraculous catch. Says the, 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 literally, the nets were so full that it was dragging two entire boats down into the sea. Over and over again, what I have seen in my life and through the scriptures is this. When we come to the end of our pride, when we come to the end of our arrogance, when we come to the the end of us thinking we know the best way to live our lives and we offer our lives to Jesus in any step of faith, that's where we see the power of Jesus on display. And that's what happens here. I recently heard another pastor talking about Jesus's first miracle. It happened at a wedding where he turned that water into wine. They were in that day, they were running out, they were running out of wine. The wedding attendants were freaking out. And, and so they came to Jesus because they're like, hey, if we run out of wine, this is a major fail. People in weddings at that day, you don't run out of wine. It would have been a massive, massive problem. And so they come to Jesus. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, hey, just bring me that water. Now, if you're those attendants, what are you thinking? Water? <laughs> We can't serve water at a wedding. That's like serving spam instead of steak. You can't do that. We don't do that, Jesus. Water. What does it say? As they brought Jesus their water, he turned it into wine. Church family, do you realize that on your own, all you've got is a bunch of water? Your talents, they're water. Your wisdom, it's water. Your knowledge, it's water. Your efforts at your workplace, water. Your efforts to to, to be part of ministry, whether you're serving people or you're trying to do evangelism, trying to share the gospel. My most, most profoundly developed sermon, it is water. But over and over what we see is when we are humble and we take a step of obedience to what Jesus has called us to do, when we offer up our water, what does he do? He turns it into wine. He brings about a change. He brings about supernatural change both in us and through us that is beyond our own comprehension and ability. We have to offer it to him, though. It begins with depending completely on him. I wonder, do you believe that this morning? Do you believe he can take your words at work and make them wine? Do you believe that he can take your evangelism efforts with your neighbors and your friends and make them wine? Do you believe that he can take your marriage, your failing marriage, and turn it into wine? Do you believe he can take your financial situation and turn it into wine? 
If you do, it begins with taking a bold step of obedience. Jesus, because you say so, I'll let down my nets. The last thing we see in this text is this. Jesus is more worthy than we could ever imagine. You see this progression here. Jesus calls him to go deeper. He obeys, and he sees Jesus do a miracle. And what happens? He sees Jesus' worth. I will never get tired of saying this. Jesus is the treasure above all treasures. He is the greatest treasure in your life, whether you realize it or not. As Peter gets even just a glimpse of who Jesus is, this is his first interaction. When he gets a glimpse of who Jesus is, when he gets a glimpse of the power that Jesus has, he falls down on his knees. Look at verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees. To fall down at your knees is an act of what? It's an act of worship. It's an act that communicates, Jesus, you are authority, not me. It's an act that communicates, Jesus, you are of great worth. I am unworthy. It's an incredible act. And what we find is that this quickly leads into an act of repentance. Verse 11, or at the, the, sorry, the end of verse 8. It says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You say, what's happening here? Why would Simon Peter see this miracle and all of a sudden he's confessing his sin? He's, he's laying down in an act of repentance for his sin. What's happening here? Well, friends, this is something we see over and over again in the Bible. That when you get into the presence of the real, true, living God, at the very beginning, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. That's not what our culture will tell us. If you were to go to Stonestown Mall later today and you were to go to the Hallmark store in the religious section, no doubt you would find cards that had this idea of drawing near to God. And on that card, you're probably going to have pastel colors and light. And, and the whole goal of that card is to bring up the sense of, of, of kind of warm toastiness, right? I feel so good. Well, what that tells me is that the card designers have never read their Bible. Because when you see anybody have an encounter with the true living God, whether it's Abraham or Moses or Job or Elijah or Isaiah or Peter, what happens? There's discomfort. So for instance, you have the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah has a vision of the, the living God. He sees him in his glory. And what does Isaiah say? Does he say, oh, this feels so toasty. This feels so good. No. What does he say? Woe is me. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I'm a gener part of a generation of unclean lips. He sees his sin. When we have an accurate view of who Jesus is, one of the first things that happens is it causes us to see how unworthy we are, how full of sin we are. It may be very easy for me to be under the illusion that I'm really a good person, that I'm pretty holy, that my works are pretty, pretty solid in this life. But that illusion breaks down when I compare myself to the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. My power is nothing compared to his power. My beauty is nothing compared to his beauty. We begin to see our sin. Has there ever been a time in your life where you've come into the presence of Jesus and you've realized, man, I am a sinner? I have failed. Just like Peter, I am sinful. And I need you, Jesus, to do something for me. I need you to forgive my sin. 
I'm so grateful that Jesus does not push Peter away in this moment. Look at verse 10. What does he say? Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Jesus doesn't push Peter away. Instead, what does he do? He draws him in and he begins to transform him. He begins to bring a complete change in Peter's life. And he does the same thing for us. You see, Jesus calls Peter to himself because Jesus knows that he's about to go to the cross to die for Peter's flaws. He's about to go to the cross and take the punishment that Peter deserves for his sin. So he draws him to himself. He says, rely on me, depend on me, and I will bring change. I will make you a catcher of men. Well, I love when the, we're going to close with this, verse 11. What does it say Peter does? It says, and when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. That phrase, they left everything, has just stuck with me all this week. They left everything. What did they leave on the shore that day when Jesus called them? Did they just leave their nets that they were cleaning? Did they just leave their boats? No. You read the text and what did they leave? They left the greatest catch of all time. For Peter, his eyes had never seen as much money as was in that boat that day. He was on the brink of economic success, of of professional success. He had never had a larger catch. And yet that's the day that Jesus says, Peter, follow me. And it says immediately, Peter left everything and followed Jesus. What does that teach us? Does it teach us that if you are going to encounter Jesus, you have to leave your profession and become a vocational minister? No. What it teaches us is this. Jesus, once we encounter him, once we know him, Jesus is the priority of our lives. He's the number one priority in every area of our life, both publicly, uh, privately. He becomes the greatest treasure of our hearts. We're willing to leave anything and everything behind for the sake of pursuing him. This morning, as we close our time together, does your life reflect a heart that treasures Jesus above all things? When you treasure Jesus, it changes your perspective. You go into your workplace thinking not, how can I get the most profit? How can I get the ladder for my influence? No, you're asking this question. How can my job most maximize the name of Jesus? You look at your kids and your parenting. You say, how can I most maximize the name of Jesus into the life of my kids? You look at your resources, your money, your time. You say, how can I use these things to maximize the name of Jesus? Is that your perspective this morning? Is that your heart? Has your valuing of Jesus led you to worship? Has it led you to repent? Has it led you to place him as the priority in every single area of your life? Today, no matter where you're at on the spectrum, I'm just telling you, he is inviting you to a deeper relationship with him. If you're a member of this church, we are in a season where we're going to be moving into some deep waters together. The question is, are you going to offer yourself to him? Are you going to put your trust in him? Or are you going to say, no, this isn't practical. This is too scary. I don't know what these waters are. I don't know where they're going to lead. Jesus says, go deeper with me. When you do so, if he can turn measly water into wine, I want you to think, what can he do with your life? What can he do with this church? 
when we offer ourselves completely to him.